0: Welcome to A Passion to Serve. My name is Don Kutnicki and I'm the host of the podcast. I'm a big fan of storytelling and during this podcast, we'll be sharing real human stories about migrant and seasonal farm workers and the work that is being done on their behalf. For example, do you know about the contributions of migrant and seasonal farm workers to the United States economy and the challenges these farm workers face on a daily basis? What about services for farmworker youth in order to lead them on to the path towards self-discovery and self-sufficiency? And what about lessons learned by leaders who have dedicated their lives to serving others through a myriad of programs? These stories and so much more will be part of A Passion to Serve. I hope you decide to join us on this path of discovery. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 10 of A Passion to Serve. The Association of Farmworker Opportunity Programs, or AFOP, has begun producing Facebook live events as part of their Children in the Fields campaign. These conversations focus on the impact of the coronavirus, or COVID-19, on farmworker families and the agricultural industry. During this episode, AFOP Programs Communication Coordinator Kendra Mosley speaks with Lee Wicker of the North Carolina Growers Association, or NCGA, Sally Worley of Practical Farmers of Iowa and Baltimore Velasquez, founder of the Farm Labor Organizing Committee, or FLAC.
1: Let's go ahead and get started. My name is Kendra Mosley. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Children in the Fields Campaign's uh, Live Thursday. Today, we are having a uh, part two conversation about the coronavirus. Last week, we discussed uh, how it impacts farmworker health, and we had guest speakers from Migrant Clinicians Network. That was a really productive conversation, really informative. And today... We're having part two of that conversation, talking about the impact of the virus on the agricultural industry as a whole. Um, again, I'm Chem- Kendra Mosley, I'm the coordination, commu- communications coordinator for AFOP Health and Safety Children in the Fields campaign. Um, and I'm joined by Sally Worley from Practical Farmers of Iowa. We have a couple other guest speakers that we're planning to be on today. We'll hope that they join us. Um, but for now, it's just me and Sally. And uh, just a few things that I wanna mention before we get started. Um, this is National Farmworker Awareness Week, a time for expressing, expressing appreciation for all of the often unseen work that our farm farmwork, workers are doing for us. Um, AFOP Health and Safety is running an annual national long-sleeve short drive for our farm workers, so please visit our blog, um, afophs.wordpress.com, um, to see the daily messages that we are putting up there for Enfa. Also, please make sure to keep coming back. Um, to this page for weekly Facebook live broadcasts uh, for various on various topics relevant to farm workers and farm worker children. And I think we have Lee back. Hi, Lee.. Oh, I'm you're back. Back. Great. So I'm still doing an introduction um, and I introduced Natalie a little bit. This is Lee Wicker from North Carolina Growers Association. And we're also expecting bottom of Alaskas from, Farm Labor Organizing Committee in North Carolina, but uh, he has not yet joined. Um, for those who are new to our page, the Association of Farmworker Opportunity Programs has 52 member organizations that all operate the Department of Labor's National Farmworker Jobs Program, NFJP. Um, we are in all the, of the states except for Alaska and the District of Columbia. And uh, within AFOP, we have health and safety programs and the Children in the Fields Campaign. Um, And the Children in the Fields campaign is where you are right now. So, um, We advocate uh, on behalf of migrant and seasonal farm workers and their children. These children can often seem invisible, they can feel invisible, they're left out of the law, they're left out of the educational system, and they're often just left out of the conversation entirely. So that's why we use this platform and other avenues to raise their profile among the general public, partly by showcasing the essays and the artwork that they submit to us every year through our art and essay contest. Um, By the way, 2020 contest is coming soon. That's opening up on April 1st. So keep uh, your eyes out for that announcement. It'll be right here on Facebook and also on our website. Um, Yeah, so as I was saying, Margaret and seasonal farm worker children are incredibly talented uh, individuals who have incredible obstacles to overcome. Um, And speaking of obstacles, We just endured a pretty tumultuous week um, this past week with the coronavirus, during which many non-essential businesses were shut down in many states, and only essential personnel were permitted to continue going to work. And it was determined that farmers and farm workers are essential, so they are going to work, obviously, because we have to eat. So everyone's wondering, how is all of this upheaval affecting the agricultural industry, farm worker families, and everyone's livelihoods? And to find out, we've invited several speakers, as I've already mentioned. So welcome, Lee and Sally. (laughs) Welcome to the broadcast. Um, This is Sally Worley from Practical Farmers Farmers of Iowa, and uh, Lee Worley from North Carolina Growers Association. Um, Just a quick note, AFOP and Children in the Fields campaign is facilitating this conversation um, we do not endorse the opinions of any speakers necessarily, so, um, just to put that in there. Um, to start out with Lee, he joins us from North Carolina, he's, uh, the deputy director, deputy director of the North Carolina Growers Association, which is the nation's largest H2A user. He's served there since 1997 and his work includes government affairs, labor relations, regulatory advocacy public policy development, compliance training and support, member services, political affairs and grassroots programs for the 650 farmers in the Cooperative. Lee understands the unique challenges of farm labor management and compliance because he's lived it for 40 years. Lee is a proud advocate for farmers and farm workers. Sally Worley is the executive director of Practical Farmers of Iowa. Practical Farmers equips farmers to build resilient farms and communities. Sally has worked there in several different roles since 2007. She has undergraduate degrees in horticulture and environmental studies from Iowa State University. And she's currently completing an executive master's in public administration from the University of South Dakota. So we're happy to have you two. Um, Hopefully, Valdemar Velasquez will also join us eventually. Um, He's the president and founder of the Farm Labor Organizing Committee. If not, we will have a separate conversation with him later. Um, So we'll just dive right into the questions and we'll start with you, Allie. Um, Just one second, let me get this started here. Okay, so the first question is, uh, how do you think the COVID-19 will affect or is affecting U.S. farms?
2: Well, that's certainly a big question and I think one that is on a lot of our minds. And I think the answer to that is evolving daily. Uh, And the complete short answer is we don't really know. We don't know how long this is gonna last or how far the reach will be. Um, You know, there is a lot of uncertainty right now. Um, As you already said, Kendra, farmers have been deemed essential workers, so they are still working and they are still producing food. So we will still have food, how we get that food and how it's being distributed might change a little bit. Um, And hopefully the silver lining of this will be in the long term that this shows an opportunity for us to have a more resilient food and farm system, one where the autonomy and the economics of the food system is more with the farmers and the farm workers um, and more concentrated around where they are than far from the farm gate. Um, farmers are already an isolated group and they were so pre COVID 19. Um, and a lot of what we do at Practical Farmers is help them create networks so that they have peer support groups. One of our farmer's um, recent sentiments was uh, this, I will read what he said. He said, I dislike using the phrase, but a perfect storm might be at the door of many farmers this spring. Grain prices, which is a lot of what we produce here in Iowa, were bad earlier this winter and grain prices have been bad for Iowa farmers for a few years now. Um, But now they are much worse. Uh, He was surprised to see what the local elevators were bidding. Um, And he says, there's enough tension, but all of us now are cut off from our local social gatherings. These local social gatherings include places like their libraries, their coffee shops, their bars, even their churches are closed off. So they don't have these outlets that they typically have to talk to people, and they are even more isolated during this really challenging time. Um, So groups like Practical Farmers and others are putting together a lot of opportunities virtually, which are new for a lot of farmers, but still very important so that they can continue to get peer support during this time. Kendra, I think you might be muted. Thank you. I was. Um,
1: The next question was, how do you foresee COVID-19 affecting food distribution in the U.S.?
2: We have had a couple of visioning sessions this week to help us plan for our next strategic plan. And one of the questions that we had during the visioning session was, what do you think agriculture will look like in the next 20 years? And specifically the impacts of the coronavirus came up. And I think that some people are kind of hopeful about that. One person mentioned that um, this virus is just really showcasing the vulnerability of our food system, is showcasing how verticalized it is, which is problematic in times like this. And they think it provides an opportunity to us for us to bring it back to a more resilient food system, one much in line with what Practical Farmers is working toward, where farmers have autonomy and decision-making and the money generated from food systems is going back to farmers and farm workers rather than going far away from the farm gate, which is currently what is happening. Um, And hopefully that this can point out the kind of leadership and food system we all need. Another person during this listening session commented that we know things are changing and it's hard to know what it's going to look like, but it's really important for us to be aware of the opportunities that emerge. Um, and he said he anticipates seeking in agriculture with a greater emphasis on resilience and on self-reliance. Um, the kind of work that PFI is doing will be amplified uh, because the need will be more apparent. Um, and that need is really focusing on community needs um, and taking care of people in communities. We know that uh, for the people selling direct, um, keeping markets open as exen- essential food access points is really important, and they are looking for some guidance from, uh, you know, state leaders on how they can do that while minimizing risks, such as not allowing sampling, not allowing table costs, um, you know, different things like that, that Marcus can do to still stay open. Um, but what one of my colleagues said is that she is really hearing that mo- farmers are motivated and rising to the occasion to provide food, um, and maybe even more so now in this situation we find ourselves in.
1: That's, that's wonderful. Um, sorry, I'm still learning this te- technology platform, let's see. Okay, next question. Um, are the growers seeing a higher demand for crops with the grocery store shelves being empty? I know I went to, I've i been going to the grocery store and it's it's empty every time I go.
2: Yeah, so there are some immediate losses, particularly for people selling to restaurants, that they suddenly have all of these bumper crops that they were selling to restaurants. But overall, farmers who are selling direct are absolutely seeing an increase in demand The Iowa Food Cooperative is an online platform, ordering platform that people use to order and pick up Iowa products. This cycle, uh, they closed their cycle a day early um, because of so much demand, but they had $12,000 in sales more than their highest sales day um, in that two week cycle. Uh, Farmers markets, some farmers markets have already announced delay in opening here in Iowa, which concerns farmers. However, at the same time, they're getting increased requests from people because there aren't eggs, there aren't meat, there aren't vegetables in the stores like typical. So the farmers are quickly adapting. Some of them are offering home delivery. Some are offering meetups and parking lots where they're making sure that they have social distancing. I just picked up beef from one of our local farmers yesterday, and she had a system where I picked up the meat and talk through through window and spent my money out. And so they're, they're, they're adapting pretty quickly to it and it hopefully will be an opportunity. A few years ago when the avian flu went rampant through our country, we experienced a lot of impact here at in Iowa. And we reached out to all of our members who raised birds who that are not in the very large concentrated facilities that saw a lot of the negative impacts. All of those who had outside flocks or smaller flocks had increased sales, increased uh, demand, and they were able to raise their prices and increase their margins on those. And those kinds of um, impacts had lasting effects for them. So, you know, while this is a really anxious time, hopefully there will be increased local food and more infrastructure for people to get their food locally. I feel really fortunate because I already have a good relationship with multiple farmers. So I have eggs, meat, produce, and I'm not worried about those things. Toilet paper is still, you know, I don't know where my future lies with that, but my food I feel have covered and I'm I'm really grateful for that and I think more people will find those outlets. Um, And you have the thing running on the screen there. We are promoting our members with local foods on our website so other people can access that food as well.
1: Great. Sally, what is the margin for error, economically speaking, for a typical grower? Are people in the industry worrying that this pandemic could exceed that amount?
2: So the margin and error varies depending on the enterprise and production system. But in general, it is not, they don't make, their margins are slim. So they are definitely worried that this could exceed that amount. But fortunately, there are a lot of people coming to aid and there are a lot of relief packages in the works. For example, the National Sustainable Ag Coalition is working on the federal package that's coming out and making sure that there is um, assistance for direct marketer farmers, um, socially disadvantaged and beginning farmers in that. Farm Aid and American Farmland Trust are also coming out with some kind of aid packages. So it is definitely a concern Um, but one that people are jumping onto really quickly.
1: Okay, sorry. Um, Next question is, were farmers able to begin planting since this virus started spreading right at springtime?
2: So I can answer this for Iowa, and I know it's different in different parts of the country. Um, but as you said, they're considered essential workers, so they are still working. Uh, currently, what's going on is a lot of uh, greenhouse planting, early crop planting, uh, kidding and lambing is all going on right now. April 10th is a big date here in Iowa because that's when farmers can get to plant season crops like corn and soybeans, the predominant crops here in Iowa, and a lot of those systems are set up for not a ton of people to do that work, so that's not changing a whole lot. Um, When that will change for Iowa to be more in line with some of the other states, you know, this is impacting, I would imagine, states like California more right now where they rely on a lot of workers for their planting season we'll see more of that uh, impact during harvest if this is still going on when we do need more, more hired workers in. Um, and then another uh, consideration is all of their supplies. Many people purchase a lot of their supplies the season prior, so they should be um, pretty set for now. But as uh, you know, the system's disrupted more, they might have a delay in purchasing additional inputs for their their farm.
1: Okay, so we've been rejoined by Baltimore and by Lee. Can you both hear me? Lee and Baltimore? I'm yes. not. Oh, good. Baltimore, can you hear me? Still getting an L from Baltimore, I think, which is unfortunate. Um, hey, Lee, uh, I'll st- just um, put up a question that I had ready for you. What are growers doing to promote the safety and prevent themselves from getting infected by the virus? As you probably, I mean, as you know, the grower community is um, is aging. The average age, I think, is over 50, so they might be in that risk category.
3: Yeah, I, I don't think that the growers are doing anything really different than anybody else or me anything yeah. special they're they're limiting their uh, travel they i think most growers are adopting sort of a stay in place uh approach obviously the safest place for everyone to be is at home and not out and about so uh, you know I, I don't you're right about growers uh the grower community in general uh, being in the upper 50s early 60s and so uh, potentially more vulnerable there I don't think most growers feel that way but they I also think that they're they've embraced and respect the recommendations from uh, the CDC and other government health organizations so I, they're trying to comply
1: Um, And what are they doing to prevent the fires from spreading among migrants and in migrant housing and migrant centers? I know you mentioned uh, just offline to me that North Carolina Growers Association um, brings farm workers on campus to do different trainings. Can you mention the the different procedures that you've put into place for that?
3: Yeah, um, sure. So North Carolina Growers Association is a joint employer uh, cooperative that Participates in the H-2A guest worker program, and we uh, we plan to bring about 9,000 workers to North Carolina this year for our 650 members to grow about 50, 60 different labor-intensive crops, and our our average farmer at the peak of harvest will have 14 H-2A workers and several, you know, other uh, local workers employed on the farm and so they want to be farmers not experts on labor and employment law and the h2a regulations. so we uh we've centralized the process so that uh, all the workers uh coming in to go to work for our members come through our offices in bass north carolina uh, for orientation where we do the i-9s and uh show safety videos about pesticide training and uh they meet with uh, the labor union and other advocates, farm worker health folks. And so uh, in trying to comply with the social distancing uh, requirements, we've, uh, you know, last year this time or in a normal year on a Friday or Saturday, it'd be very common to come to NCGA and find three, four, five, six hundred 600 workers uh, all there at the same time. And so we've asked, uh, the recruiter agents that we work with in Mexico to, you know, ask the workers not to come to Monterey to pick up the visas and spend the night. You know, just wait for their call. Come pick them up when they're ready. Uh, the charter bus company is taking everybody's temperature when they uh, get ready to leave Monterey, head for the border. Their temperature is taken when. Uh, They get ready to cross the border by the Customs and Border Protection folks. And so we've asked the charter bus company to – we've bought bag lunches for the guys to eat uh, as the first meal after they cross the border. And we've asked them to uh, stop at certain places uh, for the workers to get food and be able to use restrooms. There's restrooms on the bus, of course, but uh, when the bus is refueled to – Stick to certain locations and encouraging the workers. We've sent the CDC Spanish version of the uh, how to stay safe and the what the symptoms look like for COVID nineteen. And so we're encouraging the workers to uh, to avoid contact with folks you know on the way up here uh, when they get to VAS. We, we've asked the charter company to to stage the buses to come in so that we never have more than two buses on campus at any time, um, which would be in the range of 80 to 90 people. And then we, we've asked the workers not to congregate in closed groups. And we call the, uh, the workers in by grower groups. So, you know, 10 to 16 people max into Mm -hmm. the office space at one time. And so we're trying to, We're trying to get the workers to uh, embrace the recommendations about social social distancing, and one of the big things that we're asking the workers to do now is uh, it's very popular. They don't work on Sundays to uh, for everybody to load up in the van or bus and go to town and spend all day uh, at Walmart and the flea market and going to the Mexican restaurants and those kinds of things. And so we're asking them to adopt uh, the stay in place sort of uh, protocol where they can order their food and supplies online from Walmart and and go pick one person, go pick them up or uh, have one guy go do all the shopping for everybody at six o'clock in the morning at Walmart when, you know they, it's been closed and they've been cleaning all night get in there get what you need get back to the farm the idea is you're, you're safer at the farm than you are anywhere else and so as far as the housing uh goes the growers this this time of year growers are adding workers but they're not filling up their uh, labor housing uh, where the workers live the housing's been inspected and approved by government uh inspectors state inspectors ocean inspectors and so We're asking workers to spread out uh, in the camp because most camps are not nearly full and to practice all the safe, uh, all the recommendations for safety, wiping down common use areas frequently, providing them the supplies, uh, all of those things. So that's just sort of a general overview of what uh, we've tried to do because we cannot farm we our guys are in this program because they can't find U S workers who want to do these jobs. And so we cannot grow the labor intensive crops that we're growing in North Carolina without these workers. It's absolutely critical. And so our message to our workers is we want you to be safe and healthy and you want to be safe and healthy. And by doing that, we protect your job opportunities because if somebody gets sick, we're, very concerned that the pro pro, the government will just shut the program down and Mm -hmm. then we'll you know we'll be we'll i mean we're already under extreme economic stress our growers are hanging on by a finger now financially and if we were to lose the program uh at the beginning or the middle of season when we're trying to plant uh and we've we a, borrowed a lot of money. We spent a lot of money to, to, to get to this point in the season and be ready to plant. It would just be devastating. We'd we be in we'd, a lot of growers would end up having to file bankruptcy. Yeah.
1: Um, I, th- I believe Baltimore's audio is working. Is Baltimore, can you hear me now? Yes. I, I yeah, I can hear, can hear you now. Thank you. Yay! Wonderful. Okay, so um, Lee, thank you very much for answering that question. Um, Baltimore, uh, the question for you is how are farm workers being informed about the COVID19 emergency procedures at their places of work? I think Lee, just talk a little bit about this. Um, and I know as the founder and president of flock, you are probably hearing a lot from the farm workers themselves. Um, what do you have uh, to share from them?
4: I can I can uh, verify a lot of the things that Lee was saying. They're doing a magnificent job responding to this crisis. Um, the uh, and we'll work along with them to reinforce uh, the information, the um, uh, social distancing, the the uh, the the constant uh, cleaning and sanitizing of uh, the common use facilities. Uh, we'll continue to reinforce those things. We got our own set of the things that we respond to orders when they call. And uh, we've instructed staff to uh, ask questions, um, especially as the season goes on, uh, to identify symptoms and make sure that information gets to the proper employer uh, and to the association. Uh, The area that troubles us the most, however, are these uh, independent farm labor contractors uh, that um, are many uh, in our in our experience, are notorious for uh, not doing things that um, are kosher. Uh, and uh, we've, we're have after a lot of them uh, to comply with the federal regulations. Now, when something like this comes up, it's going to be a little more elusive. And uh, we're going to keep a close eye on that. And hopefully with the help of uh, uh, some of the workers that are, are part of the NCJ we can flag and identify some of these things where we need to have a response. I mean, if we're going to uh, stop the spread of this virus. We're going to have to uh, be inclusive of everybody, regardless of their immigrant status. And there are still plenty of undocumented workers uh, that may not work on NCGA farms and may work on other farms that we're concerned about. Uh, that's particularly true uh, here in Ohio and, and uh, in uh, Tennessee and Kentucky and other states uh, where we have outreach with workers. Um, so it's going to be a challenge, but I, uh, we're uh, glad to have the uh, partnership with the North Carolina Railroad Association, uh, who have um, much better management and oversight of the um, uh, the constant uh, relations that are required to um, you know, keep workers healthy on the job and uh, doing the cultivating and harvesting that needs to be done this year.
1: That's, that's absolutely, I agree, Baltimore. Um, have you spoken to farm workers about the virus yourself? Um, what, is their, what is their reaction? like? Is there any kind of panic among the farm worker community as there is among the general public?
4: Well, there is uh, some degree of fear, but that fear, is more, more, uh, a lot of times, it's mixed not only exposure to the virus, but what the impact it's gonna have on their jobs. Uh, many of these workers that, uh, Come, I mean, their primary purpose is to work and to make money to support their families. And that opportunity being gone, or if that's uh, disrupted in any way, uh, that's going to be pretty uh, catastrophic. So that's one of the reasons we're looking into the stimulus bill uh, if it's going to reach these uh, these workers. Uh, we're we're glad that the AFL-CIO has put out the the call for any. Uh, subsidizing or assistance uh, to the general worker population that it extends to these group of workers regardless of their immigration status.
1: Thank you, Baltimore. Um, Lee, the next question is for you. Are there any crops that you worry about in connection with COVID-19 more than others because of the um, real or perceived threat of contamination?
3: Well, obviously, the food crops are, uh, would be the fo- focus of most of the concern. But I, you know, I don't want to start naming specific crops and get everybody, uh, uh, you know, scared about, uh, going out and, and purchasing those. And you, you had asked Sally earlier about what they were seeing in terms of, uh, demand. And it's my understanding that. Uh, the demand for like sweet potatoes which is harvested in the fall stored in warehouses through the winter and spring and packed as they're needed that like there's a huge demand for sweet potatoes right now um, but there's a lot of you know a lot of uh, one of the spring crops that is extremely time sensitive is like uh, strawberries and Uh, we're just on the brink of strawberry season in North Carolina and North Carolina has great strawberries and uh, Mm -hmm. our growers uh, adopt and the workers embrace safe handling practices and washing their hands even before the COVID outbreak so nobody should be afraid. Um, A friend of mine called me last week and uh, uh, said well I got all my workers in and I said that's fantastic I'm really glad and because people are nervous about it. Baltimore's right. The workers are calling. They're nervous about, are we coming? Are we coming? Can we, is the government going to shut it down? The growers are calling. They're nervous. And so this grower was calling. He said, I got them all in. I said, that's fantastic. He said, uh, now I'm worried that the public won't go out and buy, you know, the strawberries and the peaches and, uh, the peppers and the green beans and the sweet corn. And, uh, I, and I, I said, I, you know, I get that. So, you know, our message should be we're doing everything we can to be safe and the food supply is safe and go out and support your local farmers and uh, and give them a hug and the farm workers, too, for working hard well, and doing a good job. Elbow dump,
1: right. <laughs> Not even right. that <laughs> well, virtual hugs. Um so in what kind of scenario would you or would a grower uh, hypothetically abandon a crop or count the season a loss and just look ahead?
3: You know, growers are are scrappy and they're survivors and so you know they they never ever want to quit on a crop. So I'm I'm hesitant to, to give you a scenario where they would quit on a crop, but you know, the most obvious Thing that I could think of is, and I can't remember the scientific name for the plants that continue to bloom. The e. coli? Pardon? E. coli? No, no, no. When plant, you know, a plant that continues to bloom as long as you pick the fruit off, it will continue to bloom and produce, um, like strawberries and cucumbers and, uh, uh, you know, I if if the lay, if the H two A program got shut down, our growers have turned to the H2A program as the last resort to, to be able to hire uh, dependable you know, farm workers who want to do farm work and show up for work every day. And so you know, if the H2A program got shut down uh, because of COVID-19, uh, I, our growers would have, they'd be forced to evaluate their crop portfolio and decide you know, what was salvageable in that portfolio. And so, you know, labor intense, super labor intensive, extremely time sensitive crops like strawberries and cucumbers, if you don't have the labor there, you got to abandon because Mm -hmm. you don't pick the fruit off, the plant's going to quit producing. So fruit and vegetable crops would be the most sensitive obviously. And then uh, the growers would evaluate and try to uh, determine what crop it would be most profitable crops would be most profitable going forward with the amount of labor that they have available to them at that time.
1: Very good points, Lee. Um, Baltimore uh, there's been a few comments about this already, um, but there's, you know, just in the past week there's been some confusion about the visa processing, as well as farm workers already within our borders who may be too scared to go to work for many reasons now, you know, not to mention um, documentation. Now there's also the fear of, of getting the coronavirus. So, do you foresee a labor shortage? We're kind of dancing around that question. And why or why not?
4: Well, we do have a labor shortage in this country, contrary to many of our allies in the farm worker movement. Um, uh, I guess the the narrative is that if you put wages high enough that you'll get domestic, more domestic workers to do that, uh, that job. Uh, I don't think that's true. Uh, I was raised, uh, I'm originally from South Texas, we started migrating in the 50s to the north uh, to harvest crops. And that population is pretty much um, uh, aged out. And uh, the children, we did a good job in the, during the war on poverty in the 60s and 70s, getting kids trained uh, in school and uh, to turn to other occupations, more professionals. Uh, to this day, a lot of uh, young people that were little kids back in the 70s and 80s in, in our in our union, they're now teachers and doctors and lawyers, uh, uh, good for them. But that depleted the domestic workforce, and, um, uh, and we don't have, in particularly short-term uh, seasonal crops, You're not going to get American workers to try to make a living 12 months of the year on short-term costs. There's going to have to be a a seasonal workforce that can come in and and do that harvest. So we're going to have a need uh, to open our borders uh, enough and have a program that uh, brings workers in temporarily. Uh, So yes, we have a worker, uh, but we can fill it. Uh, If we can have a fluid program that um, uh, because we have to, the other, this, this ties into a larger issue that I think he agrees with, with us on. That is, has to do with the, uh, the fact that we, that we live in a global economy and we're, we're in competition under a lot of stress here in the U.S. with competitive um, uh, 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 growers in other countries that import crops into the United States. Uh, and the, um, the drivers of that are the, uh, are the uh, manufacturers and retailers and large corporate growers who have uh, offshore uh, growing operations that puts us under extreme competition in this country. And we have to do something about that uh, And that um, uh, the workers themselves are fluid in terms of uh, migrating even within Mexico. They migrate from one part of the country to another uh, to harvest crops. Uh, We have to get a handle on that, and uh, we have to create a system that uh, employs farm workers in a just way, but in order to do that, you have to preserve the farms where they come to work on, and the competition between small family farms that have labor-intensive crops. As Lee was saying, if the average workforce on on their farms is uh, less than 20 uh, compared to corporate growers who have uh, Eight hundred workers uh, or, or two thousand workers, uh, there, and they grow the same crop in Mexico and other places. Uh, that's a that's an extreme pressure uh, on uh, on these family farms in the middle part of the U.S. and the deep south.
1: Thank you, Baltimore. Um, and in fact, I'm going to skip ahead in our uh, question lineup and just piggyback right off of that and ask. Um, Lee, here, hang on. Um, what kind of a backup plan do growers have if the H2A program is put on hold? I know that's something we don't want to think about since a lot of your growers seem dependent on the program. Um, can you speak to that a little yeah, bit?
3: Like, yeah, like I would say, and they've turned to this program as the last option. So there's really not a great uh, plan if. We'd lose the h2a program so north carolina growers association is a joint employer that means our growers can share labor so we could we could move some of the workers around and share a, a, among the certified farmer members of certified being by u.s department of labor approved uh we can share those workers among the growers but you know if it, it would still force the growers to uh I think, to to evaluate their crops and to decide what is salvageable and most profitable with the labor that's available. Um, work, H-2A workers can transfer from uh, one farm to another through a petition process with U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Service. I think there would be some of that going on. But uh, just as one example, right now, Florida is... Uh, winding down in citrus harvest and so uh, if the h2a program were to to be suspended uh, in the next week or two uh, god forbid um, growers would quickly be trying to reach out to friends and colleagues in florida and ask you know those workers if they would please come and work and they can legally i think the problem is uh these guys have left their families in Mexico. They've been up here picking citrus for six months. They've made all the money that they need to make to take care of their families for the year and they're ready to go home and they're not gonna wanna transfer up. And so it would be a huge, huge problem. And so that's why we are emphasizing to uh, our, our workers and we pushed out all this information to the growers to share with the workers and just constantly be vigilant and do all the things that are recommended and stay put on the farm as as much as possible because we need everybody to stay safe and healthy and keep working our our food supply is a national security issue and it would be a huge mistake as sally was uh, saying earlier uh to uh you know to allow our labor intensive crops uh to uh, farms to die and to import all the uh, fruits and vegetables because at a time like this when you have a crisis if you can't get those things it will be terrible it will be a disaster and you know, I tell people all the time that I work for the best people on the planet the farmers and the farm workers who get up every morning and put on their work boots and go out and do something meaningful and substantive and real things that you can touch and eat and enjoy and we should never ever take the farm workers and the farmers for granted we need them and we can't lose sight of that
1: yeah I am um, that's, that's a great note to end our um, prepared questions on um, I want to open up the time since it's getting short for some question and answers from the audience um, and I just I know one of them actually was already mentioned, but somebody is asking if we can talk about it really quickly again. She said, what, uh, what are the farmers doing to prevent the virus from spreading? Like the, just a quick short uh, list. And I think, Lee, you, you had mentioned that you're really encouraging people to spread out and you're really discouraging any trips to town that you make sure only one person goes shopping that they go early in the morning um, before everyone else gets there. And um, also uh, providing hand-washing stations. Is that right? Like encouraging vigilant, like hand-washing practices and.
3: Aggressive cleaning.
1: How about if someone gets sick? Do you know, like, it's just so hard to get testing. I've heard from so many of my friends that they've got symptoms, but they can't actually get a test and get confirmed. Like, yeah. Yeah.
3: So we've had uh, great conversations with the, Farmer worker health community in North Carolina. It's a very strong, vibrant uh, group throughout the state, and so uh, we've got access to uh, right now for up to 4,000 test kits if if needed. And so, if you know, if, if someone shows symptoms, we're gonna insist. And and you know, I think some folks in the uh, migrant health community are nervous that workers, because of their economic need um uh, won't come forward with you know if they have symptoms because they don't want to miss work so like we're strongly encouraging the growers to be paying close attention and telling the workers that you don't have to be afraid um if you have symptoms it's you're much better off to to tell us so that we can go and get tested and confirm that you don't have it uh, or if you do have it to protect everybody and so um it's, it's just, it's just about training and education and getting people to understand how important this is. But if, if we have a case, then, uh, you know, we're going to deal with it. We will make sure that we isolate the individual and take care of them. We are prepared to go get hotel rooms or if we can't put them in quarantine at the farm, uh, NCGA has some housing. I mean, we're going to do whatever it takes to take care of the worker and Uh, all the workers. And so it's, this is a time for everybody to, uh, to, to work together and look for the very best possible solutions to deal with these issues and, and not to, you know, it's, there's, there's no secret that farmers and farm worker advocates and, uh, have been at odds for, uh, for decades and decades over certain policy issues, but now it's not a time to be continuing that uh, agitation and uh, hostility. We we gotta we gotta work together. Everybody's gotta work together. And I really appreciate Kendra, uh, you guys putting this on. This is very important, I think, for uh, the community to to understand and and see.
1: Thank you, Lee. I appreciate the affirmation, um, and I really appreciate you guys being on uh, here today. And I did skip one question, and I want to come back to it now. Um, and because you mentioned the, the working relationship a few times that you have with Baltimore, Baltimore, um, I just want to really uh, hone in on that a little bit. And just can you mention the the one thing? I know there's many things probably that have been positives about the the contract and working relationship that. Farm Labor Organizing Committee has with the North Carolina Growers Association. But could you mention the one, the biggest accomplishment that you're proud of between FLOC and NCGA?
4: Well, the most important thing is that there's a forum uh, for dialoguing and processing through issues, uh, problems that may arise on a farm, that uh, there is a respectful uh, dialogue that can occur and get things resolved before they get blown out of proportion. Uh, because to us, the most important uh, role of a union is job security for workers. And job security means uh, tackling the question of food insecurity for families, for poor families. Uh, these workers come from Mexico. Um, you know, they're, they're not the high rollers in, in, in their home uh, towns. Uh, they're struggling, you know, uh, workers who want to s- uh, sustain, support their families, build a life for their families, educate their kids. Uh, many workers are here working because they want their kids to get through college. They're paying for that education in Mexico and um, to try to eliminate the, uh, the the vast amount of poverty that, that exists throughout Mexico. So food insecurity, hunger. Are issues that are uh, tied to uh, employment, and that employment is uh, one of the most important things that um, uh, that they can get with the uh, employment in the in the United States with these growers. So I think that the uh, the uh, unlike uh, places where there is no agreement, uh, the only venues there to take care of problems is. uh, labor strife and um, uh, legal actions and uh, court proceedings uh, that can be tied up for uh, year, two years, three years who knows how long and um, uh, that's a heck of a way to try to resolve uh, individual uh, cases and grievances when um, we can uh, we can talk any number of uh, issues with the growers association, and I think that's the most important uh, uh, role that uh, that we have together, that we have a we have a dialogue, we have a a um, a venue of of communication, and get things resolved, and so that we keep the people working and the farms productive.
1: Um, we did have one question. Thank you, Baltimore. Thank you so much. Um, we had one question come in from Benjamin Williams saying that the U.S. Department of Labor reported that 3.3 million new claims of unemployment have been filed. Um, has there been any effort by NCGA or or uh, Practical Farmers of Iowa to reach out and offer work to these folks that are newly out of work?
3: Yes, we are posting all of our open job opportunities online. Our growers super minimum wage rate this year is 1267 an hour. Uh, So, yes, we are advertising our jobs through all the local employment service offices in North Carolina. And so the answer to the question is yes, we are trying to hire U.S. workers. That is one of the, uh, that is the, that is the foundation uh, and premise of the H-2A program. We're only allowed to bring the foreign workers uh, once we prove that There aren't U.S. workers who want these jobs, one, and two, that we've made an ongoing commitment that we will hire any U.S. worker who wants these jobs uh, during the first 50 percent of the employment period. So that's a great question.
1: Sally, do you have anything to add?
2: Um, Sure. So right now, our focus is really on helping our farmers find immediate markets for their products. And so we are having kind of a a virtual meetup tomorrow at 1 p.m. Central to help them do that. We also do have a labor for learning program which is aimed at aspiring farmers. Um, And and we are trying to fill those positions right now. We might have more applicants for those positions, um, but we are advertising those at this time.
1: And uh, you've had all your questions uh, toward the beginning. Have there Have you had any more thoughts pop up since uh, Lee and Baltimore have been speaking?
2: I mean, I would just underscore everything they said. They're really the experts with the farm workers, and I think one thing that we can all do is educate our consumers to continue to purchase healthy food and make sure they're um, using. Safe handling practices at their homes. They should be doing that all of the time anyways. As Lee said, our farmers are really well trained in safe food handling practices, but, um, you know, consumers, if they're worried about it, can practice those at home as well so that they do not need to be worried about their food being contaminated.
1: Thank you. I think the last question that we have is uh, about the stimulus package. We haven't touched on that a whole lot, but the question is, will H2A workers be eligible in that stimulus package? Does anyone know the answer to that? So I was I looking,
2: yeah, yeah, I was looking through some of the documents that I have on it and they are specifically mentioned for future educational programs, which is not part of the stimulus practice package. So. Um, I see underserved farmers mentioned as part of the stimulus list package, but not farmer specifically, this language is still being drafted and it's really early. So I, I'd say we don't know, but we can all encourage, um, our lawmakers to include them in the package. Lee, did you have something to add?
3: No, well, I was just going to say, I haven't, uh, seen the package, but I'd be shocked if if uh, H-2A visa holders were included in the package? Um, um,
4: we've, uh, we've started to examine some of that and we're examining right now. There's um, We think the language does call for H-2A workers uh, and even undocumented people to have um, benefits extended, uh, even uh, uh, 80 hours pay. Uh, and the question of how an employer is going to get reimbursed for that amount, like Grower, for example, uh, is one of the things that's being looked at. But um, of course, we've, we've contended that if there are workers out there doing uh, uh, essential work for the economy, that they definitely ought to receive the same benefits as any other worker in this country.
1: And I'm just doing more comments now. Uh, We don't have a whole lot of
2: time left, but- um, Kendra in the National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition's recommendations that food and farm workforce is eligible for uh, paid leave and other support, including um, access to nutrition and food access programs. Um, They don't specifically call out H2A workers there, but I do think that this is the time for us to specifically call them out and advocate for them being part of that package.
1: Absolutely. Um, I think that's about all the time that we have for questions. I just want to close with a few comments. First of all, I thank you all very, very much for joining us. Um, Sally Lee and Baltimore, we couldn't have done this without you. You have so much valuable information and and insights that we don't have. Um, uh, You know, this is a constantly evolving situation. We want to do what we can to stay abreast of, of the information. So your comments have been very insightful and informative. We really appreciate you taking the time to share to share your insights with us
4: so-
0: Thank you for listening to Season 2, Episode 10 of A Passion to Serve. My intent is to use the podcast as a mechanism for all of us to stay informed and connected as we walk through very challenging circumstances. You can use the link provided to leave a voicemail message about topics of interest as well as any other comments about the podcast. You can continue to find A Passion to Serve on the links provided. Until next time.